welcome to our latest episode. I am Vivian, one of the co-hosts of Pulse Podcast. Our purpose is to capture the pulse of healthcare innovation spanning leaders across the healthcare ecosystem. Today, we're super excited to have Gabriel Mecklenburg, president and co-founder of Hinge Health, as our guest today. Gabriel is originally from Germany and graduated top of his class in material science at Cambridge and went on to research regenerative medicine and earned his Master of Philosophy in Bioengineering at Imperial College of London. In 2015, Gabriel and Daniel founded Hinge Health, the number one musculoskeletal, also known as MSK, solution for employers and health plans. Hinge Health is pioneering the world's most patient-centered digital clinic for back and joint pain. Four in five employers with digital MSK solution partners with Hinge Health. Hinge Health has raised $300 million in their latest Series D round in early January and is now valued at $3 billion. Their investors include Atomico, How2 Management, Tiger Global, and Bessemer Venture Partners. So, super excited to have you here. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me, Vivian. <laughs> I like to dive in at the very beginning. When you were in Germany, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Yeah, growing up, I wanted to be a scientist. Both of my parents have PhDs in physics. There was a lot of discussion around the dinner table and at night about the way the world works. And that's something that's always fascinated me, just understanding how the world works, pushing that forward and doing things differently from the way we've done it in the past. And you know, that's really carried over into entrepreneurship for me, where in a lot of ways, what I'm getting out of entrepreneurship is what I had hoped to get out of science which really is that solving big problems, experimenting, doing things in a new way, constantly learning and pushing forward the boundary of what we know and what we can do. I guess when you started studying material science, were you more interested in like the bio side versus more of the digital health side? I know they're like quite different in terms of career options. As it always is, it's a little bit of a circuitous path that, that got me to where I am today. So I studied material science at university. Uh, in the last couple of years, we had a few courses centered on biomaterials and using materials engineering to change the way we treat certain medical conditions. And at the same time, in my last year of college, I tore my ACL during a judo sparring session and did a ton of research in the run-up to my surgery and in the long rehab process, just learning about the way that condition in particular was treated. So I had this two-pronged approach. I was, I was really fascinated by the modules at Cambridge about, about biomaterials. And then I had a very deep personal interest in how musculoskeletal injuries were treated. And that led me then to doing research for a couple of years at Imperial College in London with a focus on using new material science approaches to develop new types of implants to better treat musculoskeletal injuries. And obviously, in the course of that, learned a lot about the musculoskeletal health field which eventually then led me obviously to founding Hinge Health with Dan. Yeah, I'd love to go into your personal experience through going through this process, but I also wanted to touch upon before you even went to starting Hinge Health and moving to the US, can you talk about like how you started your first venture? I saw you founded Marblar. Can you talk mm-hmm. about what that was? What was it like starting your own first thing? Or maybe that wasn't your first thing, but that's what I see on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so Dan and I have actually been working together for about nine and a half years now. And it's uh, our third venture together. Uh, oh, wow. The first one that's really taking off, which is exciting. <laughs> but, you know, as with any overnight success, it takes a little while. So Dan actually founded a, a student club, the Oxbridge Biotech Roundtable, uh, back in the UK at Oxford. And as he was expanding that organization across the UK, I joined him initially starting the London chapter. And then we ran that organization together for a few years and the goal there really was getting ideas out of the academic sphere 
into the real world by fostering more collaboration between academia and uh, academia and industry. That was a, was a great, great ride. We did this while we were both doing our research, uh, myself in London, he in Oxford. And it gave us our first taste of entrepreneurship. We got to interface with a lot of VCs, a lot of people starting companies and supporting a lot of people to get their ideas out there and in the, into, the, into the real world. And eventually, you know, this was never going to be the next billion dollar thing. So we decided to branch out on our own, start a company, tackling a big problem. And with Marvel, the big problem that we were tackling was all of the underutilized patents and research coming out of the academic sphere, a lot of solutions in search of problems. So we built a crowdsourcing platform to help find the problems that all of those, those solutions could actually solve. And that it worked well to an extent. We built a platform of about 20 or 30,000 active participants combing through these patents, coming up with ideas for how to use them. But ultimately, we never figured out the right way to actually build a business model around it. Eventually, after a couple of years, we then decided, okay, this isn't going to go anywhere. And we both had that personal patient history of musculoskeletal injuries. We both had a background in medical research and just started learning more about the market opportunity in front of us and then eventually and obviously started Hinchell. Yeah. So how did you meet Daniel? Where did this start? <laughs> if you were in Oxford or vice versa? I actually saw an email coming through our university listserv saying, hey, the student club is coming to London. Uh, anybody interested in getting involved. And at that time, I had very quickly after starting my PhD realized that academic research was not for me. <laughs> uh, and I was looking for, for opportunities to branch out. This seemed really interesting. And we just really hit it off. Originally, this was you know, his club that he started. And I thought it was just an interesting extracurricular activity to participate in. But then we very quickly realized we enjoyed running this organization much more than we enjoyed doing our academic research, started neglecting our research very, very quickly and just got hooked on building our own thing and running our own thing. Yeah, I guess I'm curious. I know he's a CEO and you're the president. How do you complement each other in terms of skill sets? Or like, is there a sort of personality complementary characteristics that you guys piece together? Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways, that's really the secret sauce or one of the key ingredients in the secret sauce that helped us get Hinshelf to the place that it is today, which is we're both very different people, very complementary in our approaches. He's very much the visionary leader archetype. He sees what's coming around the corner and he's fantastic at creating the sort of vision to rally a company around, to get early customers on board, to get investors excited about where we can be a year from now, five years from now, 10 years mm -hmm. from now. He's fantastic commercially, leading a lot of our key partnerships and deals over the years. And I consider myself to be much more the builder and manager archetype. So I've been very internally focused over, over the years, building out our operations team, building out our R&D team, and making sure that doing things like growing the company from 190 to almost 600 people over the last year that the wheels stay on the bus as we do that and we maintain a really high-performing organization in that process. I love working on just figuring out how we can get hundreds of people together into a system that actually operates effectively mm. towards a goal that we're setting. Those are the sorts of challenges that I get really excited about. That's awesome. I guess it's always interesting to hear how you manage that. I'm definitely going to ask you about that later. You guys grown so fast in the last year, especially in the pandemic. I guess going back into the inception of Hinge Health, for those people who are not that familiar with what Hinge Health is, can you describe what your product offering is today, where you guys are at at this point? Absolutely. So Hinge Health's product offering 
a full continuum digital clinic for back and joint pain conditions. And what this means that we have dedicated programs for prevention and wellness, for acute injuries, for the management of chronic pain conditions, and then for pre- and post-surgical rehab. And uh, the goal for us as we continue to expand across the continuum of care is to really be the primary touch point for any patient who's dealing with a musculoskeletal injury for us to be able to serve them in a way that is more cost-effective, more engaging, and producing better clinical outcomes than the status quo, and really using technology, a combination of technology in the sense of hardware and software, as well as targeted human interventions to deliver this care in a much more scalable and effective way than it is possible right now. Great. And what did the landscape look like in 2015 when you first came into the picture? Yeah, there really wasn't a lot going on. Musculoskeletal care was very much being delivered the same way it had been for 30, 40 years before then. It was surgery, pain medication, and physical therapy. That was essentially the available options that were there right now. And having gone through this myself, obviously, after my surgery, I had to go through about nine months of rehab, physical therapy to get back to normal. And it's knowing it's inconvenient. You have to go see the physical therapist. You cannot really take time out of your day. Mm -hmm. maybe a couple of times a week if you're lucky, especially here in the US, there are a lot of cost barriers. And my experience was often that, you know, seeing the PT, we'd go through a piece of paper together and tell them, okay, do do the thing on this piece of paper. And overall, it was not a terribly engaging or effective way of, of receiving care. And we were at a very interesting point in the evolution of the digital health landscape, where in a lot of ways, we got really lucky with our timing where we had started a few companies in the market, such as Lebongo, started blazing the trail, demonstrating that you could use technology to deliver this sort of behavior change-focused, high-touch care for chronic conditions in a very effective way using a combination of, of technology and remote coaching. But nobody had really tackled musculoskeletal health yet, despite the fact that back and joint pain conditions, musculoskeletal health make up one in six healthcare dollars spent in the U.S., there's really a greenfield opportunity ahead of us. There were a couple of very small players that hadn't really gone anywhere who had tried to tackle this, but nobody that had, had really started taking, taking off. I guess what brought you to the U.S. from the U.K.? Was that always the goal to move to San Francisco? Not really. It's something that we had talked about occasionally. San Francisco is the place mm-hmm. to build a company. As young entrepreneur, we obviously dreamed sort of that to an extent. But when we first started out in the U.K., We went through a very rapid process of just testing different markets where we tried selling this to athletes as a preventive tool. You know, we're hanging out at running meets and talking to people to see if anybody would buy it. You know, we're going out to try to sell this directly direct to consumer. We're, you know, visiting the local church groups to meet sort of older folks dealing with musculoskeletal issues. We were talking to the big medical device manufacturers to see if this is something that could be bundled with joint replacement implants that they were selling. So we were you know, testing a lot of different ways of going to market and did a lot of different niches to target in musculoskeletal health. And eventually what we realized, it was easier for us to schedule meetings with executives at Fortune 500 companies in the US from London than it was to get a meeting in London with the players in the UK healthcare ecosystem. And at that point we realized as a small company of six people, if we can set up a meeting with a head of benefits at Lowe's, remotely from London, then there's probably something to the US market here. And, you know, we quickly started really leaning into that, selling into large self-insured employers in the US, started getting a lot of interest. 
early on mm-hmm. and you know very quickly realize okay this is the market that we have to be in and started shifting a lot of our focus and resources to the US yeah initially were you thinking more direct to consumer would be the right path it sounds like it's just a natural pivot to employers but how what was that process like picking go to market i know i think a lot of digital hub companies start out and it's hard to prove out their value to employers early on, especially in a market where there hasn't been mm-hmm. any incumbent. Like, what was that process like? I mean, it certainly took a while. It took a ton of perseverance. It was easy to get the meetings, which, you know, at least shows we were on the right track. But then, you know, converting a meeting to actually getting someone to buy in shelf took a lot more doing. And it was a lot of perseverance and hard work. You know, one of our first customers, their resorts. Dan literally followed the head of benefits out to the taxi <laughs> after a conference. It was a lot of Dan and I hitting the conference circuit and talking to anybody that would listen until we eventually found a couple of people that were willing to take a bet. And I think that's what a lot of early sales in a B2B context are. You have to do the uncomfortable thing as a founder, just put yourself out there and hear 99 no's from people until you hear that one, that one yes. Yeah. Do you think that musculoskeletal benefits is something applicable to all employers down the road? Or do you think it's specific employers that tend to have employees that have joint pain or back pain? I guess everyone has back pain, but... (laughs) It really is a universal thing. The way it breaks down for different employers, when we're working with Salesforce or PwC, right, they'll have a lot of neck pain and back pain. They have a younger, more desk-bound population. If we're working with someone like US Foods, you have a lot of older folks working in warehouses, driving trucks. The way the conditions break down will be different for these different employers, but the experience of dealing with back pain and joint pain is very much universal. And our customers you know, span the gamut all the way from younger tech companies to very traditional blue-collar workforces across the US. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'd love to like move to the understanding the product. So I'm personally curious, you know, you've seen a lot of virtual solutions for specific diseases, like you mentioned, Lavongo, and I can imagine physical therapy at home. But I saw on the website that you have like a wearable that measures how many reps you do and things like that. Can you talk about like the different pieces of technology that you use and like why are they so effective in building such an engaged fan base? What is it that makes your products so sticky and high retention? No, absolutely. So I'll focus on a flagship chronic condition management program, which we've had for the longest and where a lot of these different aspects come into play. And they're really, you know, the three components when we think about the technology going into this, we have the mobile app, we have the hardware, and then we have our health coaches and physical therapists in the background using a custom built tool on the back end to engage with our patients. And it's really a combination of all three of those factors that matters. Obviously, a lot of what makes this more convenient is that you don't need to engage live with someone to receive your care. You can use the app. You know, a lot of folks may use this at six in the morning before waking up the kids, maybe at 8 p.m. after putting the kids to bed. They might use this for 15 minutes over the lunch break. So having the mobile technology, the mobile app that people can self-serve and where a lot of what a physical therapist might do in terms of helping you evolve your program of exercises over time delivering education, a lot of that is baked in, in a personalized way into the app. The hardware is actually really important to give people a sense of confidence that they're doing things right and that they're actually being taken care of. 
it just makes the program a lot more tangible and a lot more credible to the patients that we work with. So they will wear these wearable motion sensors as they're doing their physical therapy exercises that track the movement of their body in three dimensions and give them real-time feedback and instructions about their exercises as, as they go through. And then I really don't want to downplay the human elements. What our coaches and physical therapists are doing, adding this human touch to the program, ensuring that the patient knows there's a real person on the other end, that they're building a relationship with over time is a huge component of how we're able to drive engagement. A lot of our investment in technology isn't just the technology that our patients are experiencing, but it's the technology that helps a single coach effectively manage relationships with a larger and larger number of patients without sacrificing the quality of the interaction. So a lot of automation, a lot of suggested interactions to take a lot of the cognitive load off the humans and letting them do what they do best, which is really investing in the relationship. Right. I saw in a TechCrunch article, like Hinge Health's clinical team is 10 times the size of your competitors. So like that kind of builds on like what you're saying, the human touch. Can you talk about the strategic reason for taking this approach in an increasingly digital world? I know that you mentioned you want to segment what they do best and make sure that they can provide that to their patients. But I'm curious, is there sort of a decision that you made to invest more on the human side and how that scales across as you build your company to IPO? No, absolutely. And it's certainly a discussion that we've had internally, right? This is an expensive thing to do. It's something that a lot of investors look at a little sideways before they really understand why we're doing it and the way it is structured. But what we found, it's an absolutely crucial ingredient to keeping our participants engaged over the long term. And especially those patients that most need help, really need that human touch. I think it's easy to say, okay, the worried well, people who already have a lot of self-discipline, who already have the environment set up for them, who've had the luck of the draw to be able to manage these kinds of, manage their wellness in an effective way. For them, a self-serve solution absolutely works. But the people who have a lot of barriers in their life, you know, who might be dealing with mental health and uh, weight issues, who have, you know, might be working two stressful jobs, who might have the kids at home that they're dealing with, all of these barriers to taking care of yourself, those really benefit most from the human touch. And those are the people that tend to end up being the most expensive to the healthcare system, those with the worst outcomes. So it'd be easy for us to say, okay, let's, let's really pull back on a human element. We might lose a relatively small number of participants, but we're losing those patients that really need our help the most. And by having this focus and on a really great participant experience and really focusing on patients with the greatest clinical needs, that's why we see the kind of ROI that we're able to demonstrate for our customers as well that has allowed us to grow as quickly as we have and to maintain 100% customer retention over the last six years as well. Yeah, I read a lot of great things about how you have really tangible outcomes from and results that you can show employers. One fact that I saw was your ability to avoid two out of three elective surgeries. Curious, how do you make this call or how does a physician make this call? How do you convince a patient to forgo this procedure? And then also, I don't know if I remember correctly, but I think or a lot of back surgeries are very unnecessary and big costs to healthcare mm-hmm. system. I don't know if that's like the right fact that I pulled, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so a couple of things. First, to pick up on what you mentioned there, a lot of surgeries being avoidable. It's incredible when you think about it. You know, new surgical procedures are 
essentially, and when surgeries are conducted, are almost entirely at the discretion of the surgeon. There isn't really an FDA process for approving a new surgery or when a surgery is indicated, which obviously leads to a lot of inappropriate procedures. And in fact, I mean, if you look at certain procedures like spinal fusions and knee arthroscopies for chronic knee pain, they have literally done randomized controlled trials where they compare those procedures to a sham surgery. Well, they'll put you under, they'll make a small incision, sew it right back out with up without touching anything. And they've demonstrated that you get the same clinical outcomes from this sham surgery as you get from a spinal fusion for chronic, chronic back pain or a knee arthroscopy for chronic knee pain. And despite that, there's still a half million knee arthroscopies every year being carried out in the US. So a big part of how we're helping prevent procedures is by forming a trust-based relationship with a participant and then just educating them. A big component of a program is education, helping people understand their condition and which and the benefits and disadvantages of different treatment options. So that's one piece where we're just Mm -hmm. avoiding procedures that should just never happen anyway. (laughs) But then the second piece is obviously nobody has a, a back surgery or a knee surgery because they're feeling great. Ultimately, the program just works in helping people reduce their pain and keep their pain down. And when the pain goes away, the need and desire for surgery goes away to a large extent as well. So it's the combination of education and just simply having a program that is clinically very effective in addressing chronic pain. Great. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it's crazy how there are sham surgeries still out there with the healthcare costs skyrocketing. I guess moving towards the future, you guys had a record 2020 year. What are you most excited for the future of Hinge at this point? And what is it like to be at a company where you raised two rounds in one year? What are your next milestones that you're excited about? It's certainly been a very exciting year for us in 2020, as mentioned. You know, as you mentioned, we raised a round in the beginning of the year. And then again, at the very end of the year, we've grown about 4x in terms of revenue and patient counts and set ourselves up with new deals to grow again at a rate of about 3x this year. We've grown the company from about 190 to 600 people. And looking back at the year, you know, one thing that we're, that we're really proud of is just keeping the wheels on the bus and keeping our bar of quality high and continuing to deliver really well for our patients and our customers. Looking forward, going through COVID over the past year, it suddenly accelerated this already existing trend towards the digitization of healthcare. And uh, over the next two years, uh, we're expecting the number of employers offering a digital MSK solution to triple based on research done by third parties. So there's still a huge amount to be done. Musculoskeletal health is a $300 billion a year market, and we've just barely scratched the surface. And, you know, over the past year, and just the amount of focus and attention on digital solutions has really skyrocketed. And that's what we'll continue to lean into. We'll continue to grow. We'll continue to grow into adjacent markets beyond large self-insured employers. And uh, we'll continue to really flesh out the continuum of care. As mentioned, where we're in the process of rolling out programs for, for prevention, for acute injuries, pre- and post-surgical rehab, expert medical opinions. And there's a lot more to be done in musculoskeletal health really, with the goal of being that one-stop shop that, that any patient with a musculoskeletal issue can come to and be taken care of in the optimal way. Awesome. I guess wrapping up, I'd love to hear any advice you have for potential founders early in their zero-to-one journey. We are a business school podcast, so any mm-hmm. business school people at Wharton, if you have any advice for them in terms of finding their next role in digital health, 
either advice would be much appreciated. Absolutely. So in terms of advice, I thought about that, trying to be overly unique with, with that. But ultimately, the, yeah. the piece of advice that I think gets repeated constantly to earlier entrepreneurs that we heard constantly when we first started out and that every entrepreneur ignores is to just focus on the market first, not the products. And, you know, we got that very wrong in a few instances. You know, the first company that we started, we were super excited about building a product that got a lot of engagement, but we completely ignored that we also needed a business model along with it. And we needed customers to actually sell something to. And it took us a lot longer in a lot of instances to figure that out, investing a ton of energy into building something that we were proud of without realizing, without understanding whether anybody would actually use or buy it. So there were a couple of times where we got that right. You know, for the first company for Marblar, the product we raised a seed run on was literally hacked together by Dan from a WordPress blog template with zero coding skills. When we started Hinge Health, we didn't have anybody on staff that knew how to develop mobile apps or build electronics hardware. And despite that, we were able to hack together a first product that was live with real users in four weeks and get, get feedback on. And I think what that taught us is if the market need and the user need is real enough, the product can be like totally garbage in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. You can ship something that you're really, really embarrassed by other people using. And if the need is real enough, people will still use it. And that, that tells you a lot. And I think the second piece in terms of MBAs looking to get into the digital health space, I think it's a really great time to get into the space because there are a number of companies that are large enough to be able to make really good use of well-trained MBAs. I think the sort of training that, uh, that a lot of MBAs provide are, are fantastic in terms of building companies. Once you've reached a certain level of scale where it makes sense to build a lot of systems and processes and frameworks, I don't know if it's the most ideal training to go from zero to one, but you know we've hired a lot of MBAs over the last couple of years. They've been doing fantastic work for us, you know, building out our BizOps team, doing a lot of great work on the commercial side. And Hinshelf isn't the only meaningfully sized company in the space anymore. So anybody who's interested in getting into, into the space, we'd certainly be very excited to hear from them. And I know there are a lot of other great companies out there as well that would be as well. Cool. Yeah, that's encouraging for both the early zero to one founders and the MBAs alike. So thank you for your advice and your thoughtfulness. And thank you so much for being on our podcast. We really enjoyed learning more about musculoskeletal health and your background. So I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Vivian. Have a great day. Thanks.